0: The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Niederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. All right, so today we will be finishing up our study of the book of Philippians. So what have we learned so far? We've talked about the difference between joy and happiness, we should have a pretty good understanding at this point that happiness is not the same as joy because happiness is based on the circumstances of life. Happiness comes from the word happenings so as the happenings of life change, so does our happiness. But joy is something bigger than that. We talked about joy being the divine product of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in your heart. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and there's fruit of that and one of the fruits of that reality is joy. And joy is something that remains all through the circumstances of life. We also talked about having a kingdom focus, that joy is maintained by elevating our focus above the circumstances of life and onto the hope of our future glory in heaven. One of the ways that we maintain joy throughout life is that we don't focus ourselves on the here and now and all the stuff that's going on in our lives. If that was how we lived our life, then It would ebb and flow, right? But if we keep our focus above the happenings of life, above circumstances, and on the glory, the future hope of glory in heaven, then we can have this joy. We also talked about what it looks like to live in joy. We talked about an other's first lifestyle. Uh, We talked about uh, following in genuine obedience to the Father. We talked about spiritual service. Uh, The Christian life is the joyful life, and it's radically different than the philosophies of this world. If we're living in the joy of our salvation, our lives are going to look radically different than the world that we live in. The way that we view life is different. We're not living for ourselves. We're not living to satisfy ourselves. We're living for others first. We're living to obey the Father. We're living to serve others. That's what this joyful Christian life looks like. We also talked about the fact that a joyful life is one that does not follow uh, its own heart. There's no joy in self as pursuits. You're not going to find joy in living for yourself. Joy is found in a new way of life, one that distrusts its own heart and surrenders to the word of God. If you want to live in the joy of your salvation, don't follow your heart. We talked about that, right? We talked about the fact that your heart is more deceitful to you than anything else in this world, and so you submit yourself to the Word of God, and that is where joy is found. And then we talked about the fact that all of this was leading up to something, and it was leading up to how we deal with conflict. If we get all that other stuff right, then our hearts are prepared and ready to uh, live in harmony with one another. Conflict brings instability and must be dealt with in a godly way. That's what we talked about last week. So this week, we get to look at Paul's final remarks in the book of Philippians. And uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed walking through the book of Philippians. It's an amazing book. Uh, It has been challenging to me, hopefully as much as it's been challenging to you. Um, This week, we we wrap it up. Uh, And he finishes up talking uh, in this book, he finishes up with generosity. He talks about giving. Now, why would Paul tag this on the end of his letter to the Philippians? everything that he's been talking about, everything we've been talking about, how does any of it connect with financial giving? The answer is because generosity is a natural product of a joyful life. Generosity is a natural product of a joyful life. Let me uh, paint a picture for you. If, If you're living for joy over happiness, you're not going to invest your resources in stuff that makes you happy. You're going to invest in things that have an eternal reward. If you're living with a kingdom focus, you're not using your resources for the here and now. You're using them to build the kingdom of God. If you're living in others' first life, you're not using your resources on yourself. You're using them to bless and serve others. If you're not following your heart, then you're not using your resources on the desires of your flesh, you're using them in accordance to the word of God. So again, if we get all of this joyful life living stuff, then the fruit of that will be generosity because how we view life is different than the world. We're not spending our money on ourselves, we're spending it on the glory of God. And so as we've been walking through Philippians, and maybe even before that, you've heard me use a few times this illustration of buying a new vehicle as an illustration for pursuing the things of this world. And I've had some people comment to me, and they're like, man, I was thinking about buying a new car, but then you like, said it was a bad thing, so I'm not going to buy a new car. So let me clarify something. The point isn't that buying a new car is sinful and worldly. So if you bought a new car, it's not sinful and worldly that you buy a new car, okay? The point is that trying to fulfill yourself with a new car is sinful and worldly. Do you see the difference there? You can buy a new car and have the right motive, and there's nothing sinful about that. But if you go buy a new car because you're trying to satisfy the longings of your heart, that's idolatry and that is sinful. Do you see the difference? Having a dependable car is, ne- is a necessity. You can't, get to, uh, you can't keep a job and not have a dependable transportation. You can't get your kids to school without dependable transportation. You can't go to the grocery store without dependable transportation. The difference here is viewing a vehicle as something more than just a tool to accomplish those tasks. And so if you buy a vehicle as a means to satisfy the longings of your heart, then you're fulfilling the sinful desires of your flesh. And let me be transparent with you. I often use that as an example because it's something I've personally had to wage war against in my own heart. I've always felt this pull in my heart to find fulfillment in stuff. It's something God has revealed to me, and I labor to silence those desires when they well up inside of me. It's something I deal with. And I would imagine that I'm not the only one in the room that, that struggles with that. I would imagine that if we're all honest in here, we like stuff. Right? Shiny new stuff, it makes us happy, and we chase that high any chance that we get. And I can look back in the struggle, think God is not as formidable as it once was. So God has been faithful in sanctifying me from glory to glory, but but they still on occasion will up and I start fixating on them. This is something. I struggle with, but the idea rings true about all things, not just buying a new vehicle or stuff. If you're running to something else other than the glory of God to find joy and fulfillment, listen to me this morning, you won't find it. You won't find it. Your search will be endless because everything else is fleeting. Just look at people who have everything. What do they want? More, right? There's always this pursuit for more because the stuff of this world will never fulfill your longing heart. Why is that? Well, we read a passage a while ago in Psalm 107, verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. It's Jesus that satisfies the longing soul and satisfies our hunger for more. He's the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can do it. All the stuff. You can own everything in this world. And at the end of the day, it's still emptiness inside of you because if you're putting your hope in those things, they they can't fill that void inside. There's nothing in this world big enough to fill that void. Only Jesus can do that. You have a craving inside of you. And there's a temptation to satisfy it with the things of this world. But a joyful person realizes that this is just a lie from the enemy. We all have this longing in our hearts for something. And we all go to different things to fulfill that longing. Some people go to stuff. Some people go to substances. Some people go to relationships. Some people go to success. All of us have something that we are tempted to pursue to fulfill that longing within our heart. But Jesus says, there's nothing else. I am that thing. He's the only thing that can fulfill that longing in your heart. So if you understand this reality and you're living in the joy of your salvation, then money isn't something to satisfy yourself with or to comfort yourself with or to serve yourself with. Money becomes a tool to use for the glory of God. So as we get all of this other stuff that we've been talking about for the past 10, 11 weeks, today's week 11, as we've been walking through this, we, we get all of this other stuff, then if that's, no, those other things are true about us, then money's not an issue. Money's not something that we hoard. And money's not something that we find peace and rest in. Money is a tool so that we can use to build God's kingdom. But here's the truth. If people got this, we wouldn't have a financial deficit in our missions budget. We wouldn't, if people got this, missionaries wouldn't have to travel around for three to five years raising support. If people got this, all legitimate endeavors to preach the gospel to the nations would be fully funded. That's the reality, because we got the money. We can see it in our stuff, but we're trying to find fulfillment in the stuff rather than the pursuits of God. Generosity is just the natural product of a joyful life. It's the product of someone who isn't looking for fulfillment and satisfaction in money, but in the glory of God. So Paul ends his letter on joy, talking about generosity. Let's read it together, starting in verse 10 of chapter 4. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in, ev- in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me." That's a familiar verse, ain't it? Yeah, it's painted on like every football banner that kids run through every, every Friday night during football season, right? And it has nothing to do with football unless you're content in winning and losing. I guess you could take that perspective. But it has nothing to do with winning and losing. Has everything to do with contentment. Look at look at the text again. It says, I know how to be brought low, I know how to be abound. In every any and every circumstance I've learned to the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent. Uh, Sent me help for my needs once again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what are the lessons that Paul teaches us about generosity in this text? First of all, he tells us that generosity is a heart thing. Generosity is a heart thing. you're taking notes, that's point one. Generosity is a heart thing. Verse 10 says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, look at this word, concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. So we know that the Philippians were very generous people. They loved Paul, they supported his ministry faithfully. It had been about 10 years since Paul had come and established a church in Philippi, and when he left, we know that the Philippians supported him financially for a while. We know that from the text. Then at some point, that stopped. Not because the Philippians weren't generous, but because they lacked opportunity. Now, we don't really know what that means. We don't know what it means that they lacked opportunity. It could be uh, a couple of things. It could be that they logistically couldn't get money to him. Believe it or not, there was no PayPal back then. It could be that they lost track of where he was. There was no GPS or phones, right? There was no way to know for sure without sending someone to find him. But whatever the reason was, it was obviously no longer an issue because now Epaphroditus was able to find Paul and deliver a financial gift. And Paul is thankful, not necessarily because he has money, but because the Philippians loved him and supported him. You see, that's his bigger mindset Here is not so much, man, I'm grateful for the money. He is, of course, I'm sure grateful for the money, but more so that the Philippians actually loved him and cared about his ministry and were concerned about him. Their concern meant more to Paul than the financial gift itself. Um, on any Saturday, you can drive through town and there's always some kind of organization asking for money, right? Every, there's always some kid with a sign on the corner with sweet little eyes just begging you to give money to their softball game or whatever it is, right? And when I pull up to that light and they look at me with those eyes, I don't even know what they're trying to raise money for, but I feel guilty not giving them money. Like I'm a horrible person, I'm cheap, I'm this cheapskate jerk if I don't like dump my ashtray of coins into their little bucket. And so when I give to those things, to be honest with you, I'm not giving out of concern for whatever organization they have. I could care less if they play softball, to be honest with you. I'm giving because I don't wanna look like an idiot or a jerk or a cheapskate, so I give them money, right? It's a very selfish endeavor. I'm revealing to you where I'm at in my sanctification right now. You can judge me all you want. You're guilty of it too, some of you. The truth is that's not generosity. Right, I'm giving money, but I'm not, it's not out of generosity. It's out of selfish desires. Generosity is a heart thing. You can send millions of dollars to a missionary without concern for that missionary. People do it all the time. It's a tax write-off. You can set up reoccurring gifts to send to a missionary and never think about them or pray for them. Paul's thankful not because they had sent money, but because they had genuine concern for him and his ministry. When you give to the church or to missionaries or other great commission organizations, are you doing it out of concern for ministry Or are you doing it without concern? Or even worse, not doing it at all? We should be concerned about ministry. If we're living in the joy of our salvation, we'll be invested in kingdom-building pursuits, right? Because our focus is elevated above the circumstances of life, and we're focused on building the kingdom of God. And if that's our focus, then we will be concerned about those things. We'll be concerned about our missionaries. We'll be concerned about ministry that's happening, and we will want to invest in those things, not out of a sense of responsibility or duty, but because we're genuinely concerned about ministry because that is where our focus is, not on the everyday things of life, but on the kingdom building that is happening. What did Jesus say in Matthew 21? He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the inverse of that statement is true as well. Where your heart's affections are, that's where your treasure goes. So the things that you love, that's the things you send your money to. If your affections are for the things of this world, then of course you're going to spend your money on those things. You'll have the latest and greatest, and you'll show it all to your friends when they come over. But if your heart's affections are stirred for the things of God, then that's where you'll spend your money. You'll support gospel ministry here and abroad, and your concern for those things will show in how you pray for them, and talk about them. Generosity is a heart thing. And the truth is, if you're not giving with that kind of a mindset, don't give. If that's your mindset, and you're giving out of your own selfish ambitions, and you have no concern for the things of gospel ministry, then you're wasting your money. Listen, God has all the money in his ministry. His will's gonna happen whether you give it or not. So if you're not giving it for the right reasons, you're wasting your money. Your giving and your generosity has to be born of a heart for God and the things of God or else it's a waste. Generosity is a heart thing, but give, but give with concern. Pray and support our guys on the front lines. We have missionaries all over the world. They need us to pray and support them. They need us to be concerned for them. Point number two, that he, lesson two he gives us is that contentment is key. Look at verse 11. He says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In all, any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me." Man, what if that was true about us? What if that was really true about us? Because the truth is, I think a lot of times, we are very concerned about not having little. Right, We're going to do whatever it takes so that we don't put ourselves in a position to where we have little. But Paul says, whether I have a little or whatever, I have a lot, I'm content in that because God is who is sufficient. Right, He's the one who fills me. He's the one where I get my fulfillment from. So whether I have a little bit of money or a lot of money or I'm hungry or I'm not hungry, whatever the circumstance is, I'm good because God is good. What if that was true about us? Like I said earlier, contentment has been a lifelong battle for me. There was a point in time uh, that... that I would get a little surplus and immediately try to figure out what I could spend it on, like a kid. Like my kids are the same way. They're like, "Man, I got five dollars." They'll even get like one dollar and they be like, "Will you take me to the store so I can buy a toy?" I'm like, look, dude, you live in a different time. There's no toy for a dollar. <laughs> even the dollar store is a dollar I would immediately try and figure out what I could spend it on. I'd, I'd, I'd free up two hundred dollars in our budget and go buy side by side on a note or I'd see a little extra in our account and go buy whatever new gadget was out there. Whatever I had, you you just gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have that new thing so I can scratch that itch. One day God spoke to me clearly a few years ago. It was almost like you ever ate something that you really enjoyed for a long time and then one day you just took a bite out of it and was like, this is disgusting. Hot dogs did that to me one day. I used to eat hot dogs all the time, and then we—I guess we ate them too much. We got four kids, so you gotta do what you gotta do. And uh, I took out a bite. Of hot, I was like, "This is gross. Why do we eat this?" And uh, that's kind of how it was. I, I was finding satisfaction in the things of this world, and then one day it was like, "This is nasty. I don't like this anymore." And God changed my heart, which I'm incredibly thankful for. He spoke to me clearly: this stuff isn't satisfying you. I'm enough. Stop searching for fulfillment and stuff. Be content. God changed my heart and helped me learn contentment. Doesn't mean I don't still struggle with it. I've shared those stories where I'll be walking through the neighborhood and my affections start stirring inside of me for a new house or a new car or whatever, but there's this constant reminder of the moment God changed my heart on that issue, this constant memory where I can go back and know that God told me and reminded me that these things don't satisfy your heart, so don't pursue them. So if that's why I'm buying something, it's a waste. Paul says that he's learned to be content in all circumstances. He's learned the secret, he says, because it's a hard thing to learn. Whether he's got abundance, he's content. Whether he's got nothing, he's content in all things. Paul is full and content because he's learned the mystery that nothing can fill you but Jesus. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy you're not gonna find fulfillment in all these other things in the world. Be content in your relationship with God because it's in knowing him, in his presence, is where there's fullness of joy. In John four, we see this account of a woman at a well. And Jesus walks through and stops at this well And asks this woman for a drink of water. She's a Samaritan woman. He's a Jew. She's taken back by the fact that he would even talk to her, much less ask for water from her. He starts this conversation with her, and we find out through this dialogue that the woman had been searching for satisfaction in the arms of men. She's endlessly, constantly trying to find fulfillment, and one person won't fulfill her, so she moves on to the next person, and then on to the next person, and then on to the next person. She's been with several men over her lifespan, and one after another she tries to find fulfillment in that. And one after another she would leave still unfulfilled, never content. And Jesus meets her at this well, and he offers her living water. In John four, verse thirteen it says, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, talking about the water in the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen, church. Pursuing fulfillment in anything other than Jesus will leave you thirsty. It will leave you thirsty. There's no job that can quench your thirst. There's no person that can quench your thirst. There's no house or car or boat or any other thing that can quench your thirst because only Jesus has the living water. Only He can fulfill you. Only He can satisfy the longings of your heart. So stop running to these other things. Learn the secret of being content. It's only by the power of Christ that you can be content. That's what Paul says. I've, I've, I've done this through the strength of him who is in me, right? It's through Christ. Strengthen him. He says, I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. If you struggle with discontentment, find your strength. Overcome that in him. Learn that he alone will satisfy. And when you do, generosity is no longer an issue. If you can find contentment in him and not other things of this world or money, then generosity is no longer an issue for you. There are people in our day and age that would love to give generously, but they can't because they're living beyond their means. They've racked up all this credit card debt, they've got a car that they can't afford, a house they can't afford, and they are strapped in bondage to their debt. That's a a contentment issue. That's a contentment issue. If you're content, you don't have an issue with credit card debt. If you're content, you won't live beyond your means. If you're content, then it's no problem to give God his first 10% and give above and beyond out of a generous heart. Contentment is key here. Contentment is key. You may want to be generous, but you can't because your discontentment has got you Held captive. Remember, Jesus is enough. He alone can satisfy your soul. The next lesson that he teaches us is that generosity is not normal. Given all of this different philosophical way of life, generosity is not normal because a lot of people aren't living that life, right? Look at verse 14. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Paul commends the Philippians for supporting him and recognized them as the only church that supported him in the early years of his ministry. Generosity isn't normal. The majority aren't generous. Even in our own church, I pulled some stats for this week. 35% of members 16 and older actually have given in 2021. I'm not going to talk about a regular basis. In 2021... of our members have actually given. 17% have given to missions. And those are actually really good numbers if you compare them to national averages. But what does that tell us? The majority aren't generous. The majority aren't involved. The majority are letting the minority do all the work. Why? Because most people's hearts' affections aren't for the things of God, so their treasure isn't invested in the things of God. That's the baseline truth. A lot of people don't want to hear that, but that's the truth. If you value gospel ministry, you invest your treasure in gospel ministry. If you value luxury, comfort, and leisure, you invest your treasure in those things. The majority of people aren't generous, but that doesn't excuse your lack of generosity either. We give not because others give, but because the joy of the Lord has led us to be generous people. Paul charges Timothy in this matter in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here Paul says, Timothy, charge the rich not to be prideful or set their hopes on riches. Listen, church, that's you. You're the rich. I don't care where you're at in the financial spectrum of of American uh, economics. You are rich. He's talking about you. We live in the most affluent culture in all of history. We have more comforts than people just 50 years ago than they could even imagine, much less people in, in this ancient world. You're rich, and that's an incredible danger for you to get prideful and assume that your money is for your benefit. You earned it. You get to dictate where it goes. Right? That's pride. That's pride well up inside of you. And we've been taught to think this way, right? I work hard. I earn my money. It's my money. No one can dictate how I spend it. Well, who's Lord? You or him? Because he's laid out a lot of stuff in this book on how we should deal with our money. So if something is inside of you welling up saying, who's this guy think he is telling me how to spend my money? I love you, but that's pride. That's pride welling up inside of you because you are nothing without him. You have nothing without him. Paul tells Timothy, teach the rich to be generous and ready to share, why? So they can take hold of what is truly life. This isn't a, I gotta do this because I'm a Christian thing. This is a, I get to do this because God blesses me and gives me life. There's a danger for the rich. We get arrogant assuming we earned our wealth rather than seeing it as a blessing from God to be used for God. We find comfort in our wealth, so much so that we live a life full of stress at the idea of losing any of it. Anytime there's some kind of natural disaster, what do we do? We start stressing. Right? COVID hits and we're like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? All my money's going to be in jeopardy. How am I going to take care of everything? So we clench it and we hoard it rather than being generous with it. and We miss out on the blessings of Generosity. We miss out on the satisfaction that the living water brings. Our desires become insatiable, and all generosity is gone. The truth is, most people in the American church today are lovers of money. They're not generous. They love their money more than they love the things of God. That's why Paul says he's learned the secret of contentment, because most people don't get it. Most people never find it. My prayer is that you find it, that you learn it, and that you live it. And the last lesson we see about generosity is that generosity is rewarded. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. There's a reward right there that you are offering up something to God and it's pleasing him. But listen to this. And my God will supply all your needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's thankful for the gift of the Philippians. Not so much for the gift itself, but for the concern and love he's received from the Philippians. But not only that, but because he knows that they will be blessed because of it. Paul loved the Philippians. I mean, you can see that all through his writing. The way he talks about them, these people were, they held a special place in Paul's heart. He loved them. He wanted to see God use them. He wanted to see God bless them. And so he's trying to help them understand it—that that there is a reward for generosity. What's that reward? God promises to supply your needs. He promises to fill you up. The endless pursuit of fulfillment and riches and material objects is over. Right? That, that endless cycle of I'm going to go buy something new to make me happy, and then, it, and then in the moment it makes me happy, then a few weeks later I'm unfulfilled by it, and so I go back and do the same thing over again. It's this perpetual cycle of buying, finding happiness, losing happiness, buying again. God comes and says, you don't have to, you don't have to do that anymore. Let me give you the living water. Stop going to that for, for, for fulfillment and come to me because I give you fulfillment. In what ways are these needs met? Two ways. One, they're rewarded by his measure, Paul says, according to his riches in glory. If I were to tell you to be generous with your money and if something happens, I'll pick up the slack and take care of you and your family. You should totally not believe that. I don't have the means to do that. You would be in a bind. We would all be in a bind. Paul says that God meets our needs according to his riches. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. Do you get that this morning? That's crazy because it says it's according to his riches. What does that mean? Let's look at a few verses together just to kind of get our minds wrapped around it. Look at Job 41:11. It says, "Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine." What does that mean? Everything is God's. According to his riches means all things, infinity. Psalm 50 verse 12, if, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God says, I don't need any of your money, I don't need anything from you. I have everything, I own everything. Psalm 24:1, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Deuteronomy 10:14. behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. God owns it all. Every dollar in your checking account, every dollar in your savings account, every dollar in all things, everything in this world, everything in the heavens, God owns it all. It's all his. So when he says, I'm going to supply your needs according to his riches, that means that he has the ability to do it because he owns it all and has it all. So even when things seem like it's completely impossible for it to come through for you, God has the means to supply all your needs. He owns it all. So will have no issue meeting your needs. He makes this promise, and he has the means to fulfill it. Generosity is a faith thing. Right? It's Do I trust that God has the means to supply my needs? But not only that, this is where it gets tricky. He, he, he rewards you according to his means, but he also re, uh, rewards you by his standard. You can read this text and think, man, if I give God... If I give, God promises I'll never be poor. You read that and you can think that. That's not what he's saying. He rewards generosity according to his measure, but also according to his standard. So he promises to meet your needs, but that's based on what he determines your needs are. We, uh, we had my mother-in-law stay with us last week and, uh, We had bought these push pop popsicles things for the kids and uh, they ate them all like in a day and she texts back and says, we were out and she says, Hey, the kids need more push pops. Grandmother definition of need is different than parent definition of need. Right? I told her, I was like, you were not the woman I met when I was 14. You were not the same woman because you never would have said anybody needs a popsicle. Our definition of need sometimes is different than God's definition of need. Right? Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. A lot of people take that to mean that if you serve the Lord, he'll give you whatever you pray and ask. As long as you just have enough faith, he'll give you whatever you ask for. God never promises that. Tell that to Job. I think Job probably would have wrestled with that verse a little bit. Right? The issue is you have to have enough faith that God does not only, not only will he provide your needs, but he also knows what's best. He knows what your needs actually are better than you know what your needs actually are. We've been studying Job in our group on Sunday mornings. Job's a kind of a tricky book. Uh, he was a faithful servant of the Lord. Wealthy and prosperous. And he loses everything in a matter of minutes because Satan comes to God and is like, or actually God reveals to Satan, hey, look at at my, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan's like, well, the only reason he serves you is because you've blessed him so much. God's like, well, take it all away. Let's see what happens. So he does. He loses everything. He loses his kids. He loses all of his money. He loses all of his servants. He ends up losing his friends. He ends up losing his health. He loses all these things But in Job 13, 15, it says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or another translation says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even though Job felt like his needs weren't being met, he trusted that God's definition of needs was sufficient. That's rich right there, right? That... that, Real faith comes into play in in situations like this because it is easy. It's easy to have faith when you have all the stuff. It's another thing when you're dependent on God to define what your needs are and you surrender to him in that and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God promises to meet your needs, and that's a reward because it means the God of the universe is concerned about you. You don't deserve that. That's a crazy, crazy, amazing reward. It may not be based on your standard of need, but trust that His standard is better and that His measure is better. So, as we wrap up our time in Philippians, the question is Are you living in the joy of your salvation? Does your life look different than the rest of this world? Does the way that you view life look different than the rest of this world? Are you focused on others first? Are you living with the kingdom focus? Are you choosing God's glory over the desires of your heart? I think we're finishing up this book and I think it's important that we take a moment to acknowledge that the majority of the church does not look like this. That the majority of the church has allowed their affections to be placed on the things of this world. And they've placed their hope in the things of this world. And yeah, they'll come to church and they'll hear the sermon, they'll sing the songs, they live the Christian culture, but in reality, their hope is not in Him, their hope is in themselves and the things of this world. It's evident in the church that we live in because the church is so weak and not accomplishing anything. We talked about this early in the year when we talked about moving and getting the, getting the momentum going where we're actually living out what this book says. If we're honest. This kind of lifestyle is is not the lifestyle that the church is living in, in as a whole. If these things were true about us, then generosity does come easy. Why? Because you've learned the secret of contentment. You've learned that money can't satisfy you. Only Jesus gives living water. So this morning, can your joy be evidenced by your generosity? not just your giving. There's a point where Jesus and his disciples are standing there and they're watching people go through the temple and they're giving like they're supposed to and people are dropping these big amounts in and they're dropping all these coins in and as it would drop in the box, it would make all this noise, you know, you'd have a big old bag of coins, ba 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 it would make all this noise. And everybody's going through and it's all about the show. It's all about look who I am, look how much money I make, look how much money I'm giving, look how awesome I am. And this little lady comes in and she drops just this little bit in basically nothing compared to these other guys. And Jesus is like, Whoa, whoa, that lady right there gave more than anybody else. And they're like, What what are you talking about? Did you not hear all the clanking going on before her? She didn't, hers didn't even make a noise. He's like, But she gave it all. That's all she had. You can give out of selfish ambitions. You can give out of religious rituals and because it's the thing that you were taught to do as a kid and you just feel like it's the it's the right thing to do so you do it Paul says generosity is a heart thing we should just give our money we should be concerned about the things of God we should have a mindset where we are focused on the kingdom and so because our hearts affections are for the kingdom and for the things of God we give it's a heart thing do you give out of general concern are you content and I really think this is where most of us miss it I think this is where most most of us miss it and I try to just be real with you guys and not like polished or fancy but just just tell you like it is there's a good chance that you have a contentment issue. Don't try to just excuse it away, but have an honest evaluation of yourself and your heart and what you're doing to try to satisfy yourself. I think we're all honest. There's, there's a little bit of this in in all of us. There's a little bit of, of this where we try to satisfy the longings of our hearts with stuff. I think a big part of that is the culture that we live in is very much a, you know, stuff-driven society. That's so dangerous for the church. It's so dangerous for us because that redirects our affections on stuff and not on God. I think this is the reason generosity isn't normal because so many of us are enticed by the things of this world and our financial investments reflect that reality. So my challenge to you this morning is stop chasing the stuff that leaves you thirsty and learn the secret of being content. And enjoy the reward. Find rest in trusting that God has it all and has promised to meet your needs. As we kind of wrap this up, put a bow on it, put it away nicely, joy is a faith thing. It's a product of faith. If you trust that God is good and that his way is best, and that is where all of your hope is placed, and the fruit of that is joy. So as we go out, that's the question we have to ask ourselves, where is our hope? Is our hope in the economy? Is our hope in our retirement accounts? Is our hope in our checking accounts? Is our hope in our stuff? or is our hope and our faith in the person of Jesus Christ? Because he says, if we're generous, he'll meet our needs according to his riches and according to his standard. Is that enough, I guess is the question. Is that enough for you? If you're wealthy, but yet your hope is in Christ, is that enough? If you're poor and hungry, Is Jesus enough? Is he enough for you? Do you trust him? Evidence of that is joy and generosity. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? There's a temptation that when a pastor gets up and starts talking about money, you immediately shut him out. You immediately make a judgment call and you're like, man, this guy just wants my money. I don't have anything to do with this dude. I hope in my prayers that you realize that this isn't just some money talk. The money part is it takes care of itself. It's... It's really a symptom of a greater issue. The thing that I want you to get is the greater issue. Is that your heart's affections are for the things of this world and not for Jesus. And so, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to have an honest evaluation of your heart. Let's deal with the root issue, do you have a contentment problem? In your own heart of hearts, answer that honestly. Do you have a contentment problem? Are your affections placed on the things of this world? Are your heart's longings for the things of this world? And do you try to fill yourself with the things of this world? In your heart right here, right now, like you changed mine several years ago. He's revealing to you that you have a problem, that you have a sinful nature, that there's something inside of you that lures you towards the things of this world. Because the best way to deal with that is to find your strength in God, but also be aware that that's a problem for you so that you can do things to deal with it. And so if that's you right now, if you're willing to acknowledge that you have a contentment problem, the things of this world are things that your affections are pointing towards. And a lot of times you fill the lungs of your hearts with stuff and it's this endless cycle. If you're willing to acknowledge that this morning, then I would love to be able to pray for you. I'm not gonna call you out. I'm not gonna actually come down here or anything like that. But if that's you, right where you're sitting at with every head bowed and every eye closed, I wanna ask you to just slip your hand up so I can pray for you. If you'd say, Daniel, you know what? Honestly, I have a contentment problem and I wanna wage a war against it. I wanna deal with it. Slip your hand, hands all over. Down. So the key to dealing with this is one repentance. Mourn that. Recognize that about yourself, but also don't like condone it or justify it. Own it, mourn it, repent of it. Turn your back on that lifestyle. And pursue Christ and the things that He says are worthy. So what does that look like? It means that you, right here, right now, you pray before him and ask him to change your heart, to change your affections, and then you find some accountability, you take some steps to remove the things that rob those affections for God in your life. Maybe it's Marketplace on Facebook, that gets me, maybe it's time to get rid of that, or whatever it is, take some practical steps to remove those things that rob your affections for Jesus. And then pursue the things that stir your affections for Jesus. Things like spending time in the Word, filling yourself with the Word of God. As we read the Word of God, it fills our hearts and minds with life. There's so much power in the Word. So run towards things that stir your affections for God and destroy and get rid of the things that rob your affections for God. This morning... As we wrap up this series, maybe maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never really truly surrendered your life to him. Maybe you've never truly put your faith and hope in him. There's a possibility that you even said a prayer or were dunked, but the reality is in your heart of hearts, you know that you never truly surrendered to him because there's no fruit in your life. There's no evidence of that. Your life is just like the rest of the world. It's the lost world around us. And in this moment you recognize that and you desire to know him you desire to have a relationship for him to come in and make you into a new creation if that's true about you man we would love to have a conversation with you the invitation that he offers is for you to come in and trade your emptiness for his living water the same invitation for the woman at the well is the same invitation for you today trade in all those things put your faith and your hope in jesus give him your life surrender to him and he promises to come in and make you into new creation so if that's something you would love to know more about we would love to talk to you about that there's gonna be a moment the band's gonna sing there's gonna be a couple of people down here in front they'd love to have that discussion with you if you're not a come down front kind of person that's cool there's a card in front of you fill it out drop it into the box on the way out we'll call you this week we'd love to talk to you about that you're in that first camp of, yes, you're a believer, but your heart's affections are for the things of this world and you're ready to repent of that, you can do that in your seat. You can come down to this altar. Whatever God's leading you this morning, we we just want God's will to be done. We want him to be glorified in all things. And my prayer is that he is moving in your heart this morning. Father God, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for the hands that were raised, who are willing to admit and acknowledge that they have a contentment issue. God, I pray, pray that you would change their heart that you would continue to change my heart. Continue to help us to see that life is found in you and you alone, that you provide the abundant life and there's no life in the things of this world. That we can continually pursue these things and constantly be empty, but if we come to you to fill the void in us, to, to satisfy the longings of our hearts, you promise to fill us so that we'll never be thirsty again. God, I pray this morning that that would be true about us. It would be evident in our joy and our generosity. God, I pray that you would move during this time. Stir something new in our hearts. I pray, God, that we wouldn't be like the rest of the world. There would be something different about us. Thank you so much for listening, and we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.